was just I was thinking because because uh, Hector sent me the um, sent me the uh, the record, the new old ninety sevens record, and um, I was listening to the first track, and and the, the thought popped into my head like, well, I guess nobody has to interview you anymore. <laughs> that's that's kind of true. It's it's a true story. It's all kind of right there. Well, it's funny the interviews that I've done, and I have I've only done a couple so far for the record, but it's um. The question has come up repeatedly, like, "So, are you like really fucked up right now?" <laughs> you know, it's like such an awkward question to have to ask somebody. Like, what, what does that? What does that mean? Fucked up? Like, is your life a total disaster? Yeah. Or, you know, it's it's an awkward question to have to ask somebody that's not like a close friend that you're sure. actually worried about, <laughs> yeah. whatever. But it has come up repeatedly, and I, and I kind of laugh, like, "Well, I don't know." Um, it's probably best not to get into super personal stuff. I, I'm I'm not as bad as you might think. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> well, it's I, you know maybe maybe it's a repeat listening sort of thing, or maybe it's just kind of a, a visceral reaction to you know whatever you hear the first time you hear that song. But I don't know. I, I listened to it. and I didn't think you were doing all that bad. Oh yeah, it just as it goes. You know, every single song is about being yeah. a disaster, and then it culminates in the most messed up motherfucker. Yeah, the there's an intervention song. Intervention, <laughs> yeah. But but no, but I mean the the first the first track is kind of like oh I'm doing what I should be doing with my life, right? Yeah. It's true. And I believe it and I I love what I do. Yeah. I do miss my kids now. That's that's sort of the one downside because you can really only make a living traveling. Um or I can, you know. Yeah. Um but I fucking love it, man. And my kids they get it. They don't care. They they they're proud of me. How old are they? Max is 10 and Soleil is 7. Okay, so they're Yeah, they're they, they, they're like us now. They just tell me stuff. They're like real humans. Yeah, they have all sorts of ideas, and they both announced on the way to school this morning that um, they're going to get full scholarships to Harvard and Yale. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> That's good on the rock star salary. Yeah. You are you are you are you local now? I live in the Hudson Valley. Okay, just north of Manhattan, yeah, like yeah. ninety minutes up the river. How long have you been out here for? Ten years. Wow, because it's 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 a funny thing about. Like about musicians is you, you you get this idea in your head of you know where they're from and just kind of you put them there geographically yeah forever like yeah like um you know like I found, I found out that um like the, uh, Will Chef lives out here now mm-hmm. and he's like an awesome guy and it just doesn't my mind can't really does not compute no what 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 made you move out here um God we we were living in L A. Uh, when my wife got pregnant, and we looked around there a little bit, and I love—I I mean, I, people run LA down a lot, yeah, but I had a, out here. yeah, but I, I had a—I've got a bunch of friends out there, and I've got a great—you know—I uh, I fell into the Largo scene out mm. there, which is a bunch of—you know—John Bryan yeah. played there every Friday, and it's a ton of comedians. Ton of, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boy, and it was just so much fun. It's like Amy Man, and, yeah, 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 and um, and so you know, though that sort of world still is. You know, something I, I miss. I go back and visit a, a lot. But, um, you know, it's hard to find a place to live in L.A. on, mm-hmm. like you say, on a musician's salary. And we looked around. My my brother-in-law had a place up here. And we had, uh, when we fled from 9-11, our, our, our apartment building was in the zone. And we weren't allowed to go back. We, um, we took a train up to this place where my brother-in-law lived in the Hudson Valley outside of New Paltz, and, uh, which is a little college town. And it was so 
beautiful. I couldn't even believe, you know, and, and it was September and it was fall and everything was just, it was. And New York was like burning. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and obviously the, the yeah. juxtaposition from what we had fled. Yeah. But it was so tranquil and, and it was so close to Manhattan. But so we have three acres and I can, you know, send my kids to a great public school and be in the city in an huh. hour and a half, you know. So I, I think it's pretty beautiful. That, uh, yeah. So you were, uh, you actually fled. You actually fled. You were in the the like the the debris zone. Yeah, we. Yeah, I I, I kept a journal, and then uh, Atlantic Monthly published a a version of it, an edited version of my journal. Yeah. So it's it's kind of all documented. But we uh we ran as the second tower collapsed and got hit with the debris, the smoking bits of metal and glass, and and ran and ran and ran and ran until uh, we got you know far enough away. But it was yeah, it was nuts, man. And then 10 years after, on the 10th anniversary or thereabouts, actually, I'm not sure when the Atlantic Monthly piece ran. It might have been nine years afterwards. But um, they were sweet. They they heard that I had kept a journal of it, and, and the editor asked if I would do a, you know, um, an uh, edit down a version of it. Because yeah. I kept a, like, a 100-page journal. Nobody's going to want to read that. And it's, like, all about my, you know whatever the traveling to Ohio and going and living with my wife's family. And it just kind of goes on and on. But the, but the, the day of stuff and the next day kind of stuff, there's just a lot of details that, you know, it was kind of interesting that I'd even forgotten, you know, just of the, the city during that time. And, you know, so, it's so you, depressing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's nightmarish, but it was good for me to be able to write about it and yeah. kind of process it. Writing and writing, I assume, not expecting that anybody's actually going to read that or, or let alone publish that at any point. Yeah, yeah, I did not expect it to be public. Yeah. Um, so, so you you go up to the Hudson Valley. You 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 get to Ohio at some point, and then eventually make your way to Los Angeles. Is that? Yeah, they let us back into our apartment. Like, was it like th- a month after a month after the attacks? We were allowed to go back in. And grab our stuff, and um, and that was crazy. You, you were know, just we, a, a month without whatever was on your back. Oh yeah, well, no, the, uh, it was two weeks afterwards. They let us go in for five minutes, and they said you can get whatever you can get in five minutes. And yeah. there was a <laughs> um, a national guardsman with a um, whatever a machine gun standing yeah. at the door. They basically timing us. And I it's like supermarket sweep for your oh, exactly. <laughs> it was, at least it was a studio. It was a tiny studio, yeah. and we had landed from LA we're, we were kind of bi-coastal at the time so we were, had a place in LA and that place okay. so we landed from LA and all our stuff was still in the suitcases so at least all we could, had to do was go get these suitcases that we had just flown in you know and not unpacked except that then you want to grab like the important stuff like I had to get my guitar finally you know and I remember our time was up and the guy at the soldier at the door was saying your time is up and Eric is standing there my wife is standing in the door of the closet holding all these high-heeled shoes crying oh, i don't know which ones to bring yeah. and i'm like just it doesn't matter yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter we're going back to ohio we're gonna be in cleveland you're but not the, gonna need your high heels but that's i mean that's like an interesting <laughs> thought experiment is you've got five minutes what do you what do you grab i yeah. mean not, you know the guitar so you were you were like two weeks without a guitar Two weeks without a guitar. I wrote a song during that time, too, and I used... There was a little uh, puppet that my in-laws had bought in Mexico, and it was one of those marionettes, and he had... It's called like a, a guava? A guave? It's it's a, the instrument that's shaped like a fish and has ridges, and you take a oh, stick. Oh, yeah, the, the little... Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's... 
it was miniature. You know, it was like an inch long because it was in the hand of this tiny marionette. I swear to God, I wrote a song using that as like a percussion instrument just to have an instrument, just to have something to write a song with. And it was a song called She Loves the Sunset. That, that Yeah, I think it's actually on the Atlantic Monthly website, wherever they've got that 9-11 piece because yeah. they, they had me tell about it. And it was pretty sweet. <laughs> Just, this is the, just this like desperate compulsion that that you, that you have to write music. Yes, yeah, to the point where I'll take a little tiny little yeah. marionette and make him be my instrument. Yeah, was that was that song related to what was happening to you at all? It's just it's a sweet song about you know she loves the sunset, she loves the cocktail bell. You know, it's it's about a girl who it's a it's it's a funny kind of complicated song. Uh, it's about a girl who loves that you know the sunset and and it's the boy who's saying like i love a girl she loves the sunset so it's like this kind of thing like it's a love song but it's sort of tempered by you know does she love me as much as the sunset i don't know but you know how, how was how was how was the songwriting impacted by the fact that you were playing it on a, a tiny marionette percussion well, instrument well let's just say it's a pretty simple melodic structure yeah. and it, you know it was a pretty straightforward one four five chord arrangement there was not a lot of you know, sevenths or diminished chords. I had to be able to just remember the melody in my mm. brain. But yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, de- I'm really interested in this idea of, you know, of kind of, I guess, like artistic compulsion. Because I think, I think again, I think that speaks to the first track on the record of, yeah, of. Uh, I mean, what what is the longest in, in like recent memory in the, you know, what twenty some odd years you've been doing this professionally? What is the longest you've gone without playing or writing? Oh God. I don't know. I mean, I guess those two weeks after nine eleven, before I had a guitar, yeah, um, was would be the longest. And there'll there'll be stretches nowadays when if I'm off tour, when I can kind of fall out of it, and I'll, I'll maybe not play guitar for a week or something. But then then you've got stretches where for months I'm playing guitar on stage two hours a day, and then in the dressing room or on the bus. Yeah, I I love it, and and it's true that line in the the sixth verse where, where the, the narrator let's say says um now you just do it because it's what you do now you just do it because it's what you do you know this, this is it this is what i do and, and it's funny there was a a bowie interview 10 years ago in rolling stone where and i'm a huge david bowie fan sure yeah and um he 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 had one quote in the interview that, that broke my heart where he said i still love music i still listen to all kinds of music well except country obviously which i'm like oh come on why be so close-minded that is a weird thing to hear coming from david bowie yeah i thought so too especially because ever you know he was around in like you know like the graham parsons era and the- black country rock i mean he yeah. you know the man who sold the world had some swingy stuff on yeah. it but I think that he, what he was referring to was maybe what we know as modern country. I think mm. that maybe that's what he meant. But regardless, he had this prediction in that. And this remember, this is maybe even longer than 10 years. It might have been 12 or 13 years ago. And it was when we were just realizing that the, the music industry, was, as we knew it, was going to implode yeah. or collapse or yeah. whatever happened to it. All of the above. Yeah. And um, he said, it's going to be good because it means that all the people that are in it for profit – are going to be gone mm. and the only people that are going to be left are the people who just have to do it because they have no choice and it's uh i really think it's true i mean I, I still think people buy into the rock star idea and the idea of the mythology of it but i think that's going so by the wayside so quickly you know i i'm glad too i thought the mythology was never the 
the best part of rock. You know, and I liked it. Obviously, liking Bowie meant, you know, liking the mythology a little. But but even with Bowie, there was always or there was frequently like a tongue in cheek acknowledgement that yeah. it was there that there was a false, you know, base of this that this thing was sort of, you know, a, a goof, a gag, a stage play. You know, and he studied so much theater that it was it was theater and and I think he was acknowledging that in some ways while he was doing it. Where so many rock and rollers, you know, ate ate their own feces. <laughs> no, yeah. they, they they believed some their way, own some literally story. in the case yeah. of G. G. Allen, right? <laughs> oh god, yeah. <laughs> They believe their own hype, yeah. Yeah. So this, so, so I mean, what you know, what makes you, what makes you write a something that's that's so kind of on the nose, really? You know, like that's so, that's like such a, a kind of a frank and literal song, and and to open up the record with it. Yeah. Well, I figure if you're gonna do it, you have to do it, right? <laughs> yeah. And it, I was on an airplane. I'd been writing a bunch of songs that I felt like were really honest and really. Writing on literal. The no, I've been writing in general a lot of songs um, during the last year, year and a half. Yeah, a lot of songs where I just felt like I was less taken with the idea of a narrator and more taken with the idea of just being the guy that's singing the song. Yeah. You know, yeah. and and admitting my own um, problems and shortcomings and whatever. And and so on this flight, it just occurred to me like, okay, it's going to be twenty years since we put out our first record. You mm-hmm. know, I made a record in high school. That's 26 years ago now. And that's crazy to me. And so it all started kind of, um, it all started to build a, a picture in my mind of like this life of music, a life. I, I, I thought I would be a, a writer when I, when I was in high school. Mm-hmm. And I, that was the, my scholarship to Sarah Lawrence was cr- for creative writing. And I, I still have dreams of doing that, but, um, the idea of a life of the mind is something that I was always taken with, you know, like the idea that you can, you can make a living by thinking things and making things and creating beauty and putting the beauty out in the world. And then that thing that you created goes out and makes money for you. And I just think that's such a cool thing. And, and I know that the world needs people who, you know, count beans and, you know, catch criminals and, and there's all sorts of, um, you know, there's all sorts of importance to all those jobs, but I couldn't ever do a job like that. You know, I, I just, I need to be, I mean, Freud would say that <laughs> once again, back to the feces, he said that kids, uh, that, that, uh, a, a, a predictor of an artistic personality was a child who had to look in the toilet after making his number two mm-hmm. and look at it and God, I'm so sorry that I'm really taking no. it. <laughs> so every every record you're looking at you're, you're well looking it's your because that's when you're a kid that's the first thing that yeah. you create and you make that so I mean it's definitely there's a a self centered element yeah. to it self obsessed yeah. perhaps element to it and I've always felt kind of guilty about that and embarrassed by you know my participation in that and I tried to make things that were maybe more global or more universal or more and then but with this stack of songs I was suddenly feeling like no this is me I am looking. It's the thing that I made, and I'm, and I'm realizing that it's kind of gold. It's not what Freud said it was. <laughs> well, you're shitting gold, essentially. <laughs> um, it's fu- it's funny actually that you say that you you still um, have some kind of I guess fantasies of, of being a being a writer, being a non music writer, um, just because you know I'm. 
I, you know, and I, obviously there's a lot of romantic notions around being a, a novelist or, you know, a, a, a journalist or whatever. But um, in a lot of ways, especially the, you know, for the novelist, it's unless you're Kerouac or Hemingway or something, isn't it kind of the complete opposite of being a rock star in that? Oh, yeah. There's nobody clapping. There's just you in, in a room. Yeah. And that was Hemingway's great quote was, you know, was it 99% of artistic success is putting your butt in your seat, mm-hmm. you know, and, and that is the hardest thing. But and he's the one guy who got, you know, who was out there getting gored by bulls. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you're right. It's the opposite. You know, a song takes me, I can write a song in 15 minutes. I mean, yeah. that song, this song is a six minute long song. I wrote it in a, in a three hour plane ride. Done. I mean, I had to pick up a guitar and figure out what the chords were that I heard in my brain. But it, you know, I, I probably wrote it in a, about an hour, and and it's sort of the, you know, my epic song. And um, so, but a novelist, obviously, you can spend your whole life writing one novel, you know, and it's terrifying, man. It, right now, I'm um, I've committed to review a um, a biography of. Leonard Cohen for Book Forum. Oh yeah, I read that. Yeah, it's great. Did you read the galley of it or whatever? The, oh, uh, maybe this is a different. It's a new. I, this I is a new a one. Recent biography. I think this um, comes out in May. It's okay. called Broken Alleluia. Oh no, it's a different. Yeah. And um, I guess there's a lot of books about Leonard Cohen. Well, out there. He, he's a great subject. And I oh man, the monks. I had no idea. I'm just getting to that section yeah. actually. Yeah, I think he was about the age I am now when he started when he turned to Buddhism hardcore. Yeah. So or he's a little older, maybe his mid forties, but um. He got um, a late start for as far as rock stars. Well, but the funny thing was he got an early start as a poet. Like, he spent yeah. his 20s being a renowned, yeah. like, the most famous Canadian poet of his time. Right. Oh, it's a great book. But so I've really – I mean, I've – Book Forum, uh, one of the editors, Chris Lehman, is a friend of mine. And his he, he had me review an Elliot Smith bo- uh, bio last mm. year um, that was really beautiful. And he had me review a Dylan bio, I guess, the year before that. Yeah. So – I've been doing book book reviews, and that's kind of fun too. But it's such a different discipline than all the others. But yeah, Leonard Cohen's been his twenties being a poet and writing novels. He's got. Yeah, I don't think he learned to play the guitar until his twenties. Well, right? he played a little bit, yeah. but he didn't start writing songs. And in his earliest songs, like Suzanne, was a poem that he'd written. That was one of the few that was like straight meter rhyme that he turned into a song. And pretty basic guitar parts. When oh you yeah. Get right down. Leonard Cohen has a great quote in his book where he says. Um, he said, my critics do me a disservice. They say I only know three chords. In truth, I know five. <laughs> so It's pretty good. <laughs> but he's such a smart dude. But yeah, he's that's such a, And that's such a... Ba- like, the, the Buddhist thing was such a ballsy move. Because that was really kind of right in the middle of his... I mean, he, you know, that, that was kind of the height of his success. He literally goes and lives on a mountain with, yeah, <laughs> with a monk. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm just at that point in the book. So yeah. I think he really did not enjoy playing live. You know, he had a lot of bad experiences. I think he was probably also doing a lot of quaaludes or something. Yeah. Um, Living in the uh, Chelsea. Get, yeah. Getting head well, from Janis well, Joplin. Yeah. I think that was in the earliest days when he was first writing the songs. And then after his, like, third and fourth records, he did a lot of touring in Europe and had a tough time. But yeah. he's pretty cool. Do you, do you like reading those rock star biographies? I've always been curious about musicians, like, whether they actually enjoy that. I hate reading rock star biographies. Really? When I was a kid, I read all the Bowie stuff, and I think I read some Clash stuff. And uh, you know, but I was a kid, and then now that I do it every day for a living, the last thing I want to do is watch one of those movies. Like people say, have you seen like the "You're Trying to Break My Heart" the Wilco movie, mm-hmm. or have you seen the? Tom, there's a great Tom Petty movie. Apparently, I'm like, dude, I spend 
at least half of my time in a bus or a sprinter van or backstage yeah. or on a stage with, with with other musicians, you know, and all of the neuroses and arguing and everything. And then and then even when I'm at home and I'm not on the road, when I go to bed every night, I dream about it. I'm literally having anxiety dreams about being on the front of the stage. The audience is restless. I'm looking at my drummer who's reading a newspaper going, start the song, start the song. And like the last thing I want to do is sit down and during my, you know, very little, you know, rare, quiet moment yeah. and watch a movie about the thing that I'm doing and dreaming about constantly. Especially because I, I assume that you, I don't know if you're, how friendly you are, but I assume you know the Wilco guys, right? Or, yeah, yeah. So that, that must make it even weirder. <laughs> it is a little weird Watching them fight on camera. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, I'm not, it's funny. We we started a record at uh, Willie Nelson's Perdinalis studio the day they had finished. I think it was Summer Teeth. I'm not, um... So anyway, I you know I, I'd heard a bunch of the stories already, and, yeah. and apparently it's a great movie, and you know, yeah. and they're a great band. I just I'm not that interested, and so reading these biographies has been a little weird for me. I mean, the Elliot one was heartbreaking because yeah, I I kind of knew him during the final years, and and he was a mess. And but reading about all the years leading up to that when he wasn't such a mess, it was it made me even sadder because I like this guy was an amazing musician. It sounded like a sweet dude, and I wished I'd known him before kind of got so shitty but 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 here but this is this is kind of interesting though is because i think before you were saying that um i don't know if you're saying like you wanted to take the 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 romance out of it but i I guess that you know that you you it was important that you know musicians kind of be real people and this is the flip side of that right this is what happens when you get real people it's heartbreaking yeah yeah, the demystification should only go so far. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I, I do. I do believe that the art has to stand alone. You know, and and that's the other thing. You know, even knowing as much as I do from reading the Bowie books when I was a kid, it definitely colors your experience as a listener. You know, I like I like a song to be a song. You know, and and eventually. Maybe you become friends with somebody. If you know, like in my line of work, I, I I revered X, and then they were one of the first sort of bands that I'd idolized that I've got to become friends with. And it didn't screw it up, but I saw the potential for sure of when you meet your idols. And if they're assholes, that to- that can totally it ruins it, man. Totally kill it. Yeah, it's a bummer, and it makes it makes it no fun. Yeah, but but if if they turn out to be nice, it reinforces this this idea that that got me into music to begin with, which is. Um, it's really friendly. It's a really beautiful community. And I loved when I was a high school kid and I would go be the the teenage folky that would open for the punk rockers. You know, I'd be opening for Lords of the New Church or Frank Black came through on a solo tour or Red Cross or whoever. I got to yeah. be this little high school kid with my 12-string ovation guitar. I still can't even believe I played an o- ovation guitar. Back as oh, yeah. Guys, yeah. Plastic. <laughs> Who wants a guitar made of plastic yeah. that slides off your lap every time you try yeah. and... Well, yeah, those are the least ergonomic guitars. It's a nightmare. They just don't make any sense. It's, it's a nightmare, yeah. and I and it's funny. Like Ray Davies, still like that's the guitar he plays now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But all he's, the but all those old British guys, like Paul McCartney, they all you know they love yeah. those kind of old <laughs> iconic things they got for you know hundred hundred quid. Exactly. Um, are people because because you were saying earlier again like getting I, I know I keep pounding this first song but this is fascinating to me. But you were saying that like people were coming in and they're. Um, and the few interviews that you've done on the record and basically asking you, um, are you okay? And I, I'm, you know, wondering if like, do people ever get disappointed when they realize that you're kind of a normal, nice <laughs> guy with family? Maybe, maybe I, I, I think it would be a lot more fun if I lived up to stereotypes 
and I know people that do. You know, there's other uh, artists that I came up with that that don't have the kind of life I have, and I made a lot of choices. You know, um, to not try and date famous people and to not you know always try and be in the public eye you know for the wrong reasons you know I'd, I'd never I never asked a publicist to go work the tabloid press for me and you know the, there's decisions people make and there's paths you can go down and I chose to go down a path that wound up being kind of this weirdly sedate kind of middle yeah. class like I get like the middle class is dead I but I get to sort of I get to exist in it you know I get to have a little house with little kids they go to public school and, and then I get to go out and play on stage in front of people and and you know I still get to get excited about an, an audience that's appreciative or you know <laughs> I remember we were filming uh, we were filming The Breakup, the movie that the old 97s are in mm-hmm. a few years ago and one of the producers walked out and said they had 3,000 extras pouring into the the Vic uh, or the river the Vic I forget the Riv in Chicago and and a bunch of them are just college kids straight up and he looks at the audience he goes so does this look like a typical old 97s crowd and I was like Ken our guitar player and I was like I don't know man uh, it's a lot of you know they're pretty young <laughs> and he goes yeah we need more hot young ass and he starts screaming hot young ass <laughs> to the other like PA bring me more hot young ass yeah. I'm like oh my this is so Hollywood sure Sure. So I still get excited about that. <laughs> what is um? Because and I assume that we're not going to see it tonight. Because obviously, Sydney Winery is kind of a bizarre venue for a number of reasons. But what what is a typical audience like for you? Oh, um, I know, know it's a weird question. No, it's all right. It's city I mean, city, but I do so much now when I'm by myself of these kind of like uh, seated like listening room mm. stuff, and I love it. Honestly, I love it. I got to say, I I hated the idea of. Of my rock band ever playing in like a dinner theater and we've had to do that a few places before and it's a nightmare like to for me to be up there like shaking my ass and sweating like a fiend and they're all sitting there e- eating that's no fun Taking dr- like drink orders as yeah you know. um but but this venue i mean it, this is like i'm not like a stand-up comic but it's that same sort of idea of like i talk a little bit sing some songs talk a little bit that's this is perfect for that so our typical audience is the people that have been with us all along Mm. and then in a lot of cases they're kids and then the people that came to us late so you know maybe there's a group that are like in their young 30s and then there's the people you know the kids that are that because now all music is just there it's yeah. not like it's there there was once i really feel like a stigma of oh that's from 20 years ago sure. you know and now i don't think anybody gives a shit that much it's like something from 20 years ago isn't necessarily invalid it's it's just maybe a little old and, and i think that people have given up on the a certain group of music lovers have given up on the idea of hip as a as a necessary element you know, and I, you know, there might have been a time when we were specifically hip. I don't even know if that was really ever true. I think we've always just kind of been this weird band that, if we're lucky, we'll get to be in that you know pantheon of like kind of old sort of Texas troubadour kind of rock and roll. I sort of see us kind of carrying the outlaw country torch mm-hmm. a little bit. You know, like we we're louder than we should be, yeah. but we're still doing this thing that's not that different from what Willie or Waylon. Or, you know, I like well, I guess. Some of those are nice guys, but you know, but you don't tend to, you don't tend to think of them as such. Or well, they, I think they all existed in a time when the drugs were just so massive and yeah. so over, you know, all consuming, 
and they were all consuming them so much, you know? Yeah. I think yeah. that's sort of what made a lot of those guys seem like they were jerks at some yeah, of them. Yeah, and it's hard, but it's hard too. I mean, it's, God, I don't, you know, not to get like too much into rock bio stuff again, but it, you know, it's, I mean, would, would Towns Van Zant have been Towns Van Zant if he wasn't imbibing an incredible well, that's, <laughs> that's a good question. And so, you know, earlier I mentioned other contemporaries of mine that live their life as if they're following bullet points from a Keith Richards bio. Yeah. You know, we're like, oh, well, this is the part where my girlfriend and I get in a screaming match at an award show. And this is the part where I get a DUI. And this is the part where – and, like, to me, that's just such bullshit. Like, it's so about the – the artifice of it and the oh look at me i'm a rock star you know i've always and those are typically the people that'll get up on stage and sing so quietly that everyone's like why well, can't i can't hear you i can't hear you like i feel like earn it fucking go out on the stage sing the song dance around act like you're having fun those people paid a lot of money to be here tonight you know they made it an effort to be here work for it work for it a little make your music Make you a rock star. Yeah. Don't make the bullshit that you think you have to do make you the rock star. Well, Terrence Van Zandt had some fucking demons. Oh, well, I mean, he was, <laughs> yeah. And, and he was brilliant as shit. Yeah. And I think that his self-medication was not so much about a, a conceit or a construct yeah. as it was self-medication. Yeah, it was you know? le- le- legit. I, you know, I've got, I've got to wonder, like, again, because you're, you're leading a pretty normal life as far as those things go and you, you know from from what little I've interacted with you you seem like a pretty level-headed guy and I'm wondering how many of these people who like and, and you know 20 25 years into you're playing music professionally um, I mean, how many of those people are actually still t- holding their shit together huh. um, um, a slim minority yeah. certainly. I mean, not everybody's Keith Richards right yeah <laughs> it's funny too because I because I I really I love um, meeting and play, doing gigs with you know young artists that I that I see with a good work ethic and with some innate talent. And there's this kid Trapper Shep up in Milwaukee that I think is really a great you know talent, and and he works really hard, which is I think almost more important. Um, we did a gig with a, an up and coming band that his. Um, we did, you know, I'll, I'll say, I'll say it because they're actually super nice guys, and I do think that they will have a future. But we did a gig with the Lumineers uh, last, not last year's ACL, but the one before, and it was right when they were exploding. And we, it took us forty-five minutes to get because it was the stage that's in the middle of the. There's no way to the stage except through the audience. So we were, we had handlers pushing us through just to walk through to our dressing room. And it was the intensity of, of the, the fervor with which they were being received, and the the moment, the, you know, the fact that this was their moment was so clear yeah. and palpable. And and it's easy in a way to get jealous when you're a guy that's, um, you know, maybe never had that moment in that way, and um, and maybe to 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 feel like ah, oh, why couldn't this have happened for us? You know, instead of always selling twelve hundred tickets, you know, we'd start selling. 20,000 or whatever it is, you know? And um, I watched him from the side of the stage until security kicked me off, which was ironic. I'm like, dude, I'm playing after them on this <laughs> stage. But, um, and then we were all backstage together and they were being whisked away from interview to interview. And, and, um, and I, I told the drummer, I said, great show, dude. And he's like, yeah, right, whatever. And, and kind of ran off. And it was fine. It was fine. But at that moment, I just kind of wanted to say to him, like, cherish this. It, yeah, pre- appreciate this. Yeah. 
and maybe we'll talk again in 15 years yeah. you know let's let's see i the lumineers might make it 15 years they got good songs and they work and they seem to work really hard and i thought they were really nice but it was that moment like you know being young and having it happen is got to be amazing but keeping it going for a long time mm. i mean that's that's the thing i'm probably the most proud of the body of work the longevity yeah the fact that you have a, the fact that you have a greatest hits album. Yeah, the fact that we it's have a, a greatest big deal, right? Well, we have a greatest hits album that's now ten years old, you know. And um, yeah, and Robert, Robert Criscow wrote the liner notes on it, and oh, it's wow. he's written two liner notes. One was for the Beatles, and one was for us. So I'm I now I'm, I'm, I'm not bragging the first band, but congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't have that moment though. I mean, you didn't have that. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, maybe not to the magnitude that that they did. I'm just well, we never had a hit. Yeah, okay. we, we watched other people have hits yeah. and um, and the other people that had hits the hit almost kills you I mean yeah. because you you spike you know your popularity spikes and it's inevitable that it comes down you know nobody doesn't come down you know so we were on a lecture with Third Eye Blind you know and I remember at the time being like god damn it why why do they get to have hit and then and then another hit and then another hit I'm like and th- this guy can't carry a tune in a paper bag <laughs> The songs are in, so annoying, and um, and at the time I was jealous. I've, and for the record, I've not ever heard any good things about Stephen Jenkins. I know personal. I would not normally trash somebody, but yeah, same same thing. So, yeah. um, but then would I trade places now? Would I have taken three massive pop hits for the twenty year long career that I've gotten to have? Hell no, hell no. Were, were you? Were you were you working toward a pop hit? No, well, no. I never wanted to make stuff that that would alienate people. I always wanted something that 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 climbed into their ear and lived in their brain and made them want to come yeah. back and back and back. So, in a way, the idea of a hit would be great because that means that you've done the ultimate, you know, job of climbing into their head. But but yeah, we wouldn't have called our band old ninety sevens if we yeah. had really wanted to, you know, be. Yeah. A pop hit band, you know. Also, we also like because again that you know that Bowie interview, but um, country is a tough you know unless you're really doing like whatever popular country is now, it's a tough thing to do. <laughs> well, I've been surprised in the 20 years that you know this that kind of alt country movement that we sort of came up with, yeah. um, it turned into kind of like sort of what music is now like mm-hmm. people really want music that's kind of honest and rootsy uh i mean and obviously in the last five to seven years there have been so much like banjos yeah. and mandolins and stuff but really it's like at the time there each each city had their band that was their kind of alt country band and now everywhere i go like half the bands are you know rock or metal and half the bands are kind of like us you know songs and you know are not unlike tom petty or you know, it's really it's, it's the tradition that the the Beatles were in. You know, they were a skiffle band, then they were sort of a rock band. But it's always, you know, that classic two and a half minute pop song tells maybe tells a story. So, I've I've been really pleasantly surprised that the music world has embraced this kind of music that's that attempts to be authentic. Well, yeah, I mean that, but that's and that's that's the issue right there too, is because uh, you know I agree with you. I mean, I'm in. I'm not even in Brooklyn. I'm in Queens, but there, it still feels like there's you know a, a trio of you know upright bass and 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 banjo player. But um, the key is doing it without doing it in a sort of a cartoony way. And well, God, we used to we used to have 
whatever city's version of this band was that we're talking about open for us. And mm-hmm. about half the time, it would be so we would call it skronky, like honky skronk. <laughs> oh my god! Uh, there was one uh, one band at the in Carborough, North Carolina, one night. And um, the lead singer, they were all, there was bales of hay on stage. There was like a burrow. Somebody was wearing overalls. The guy had a, one of so the guys. a burrow? Oh, well, not like an actual burrow, okay. but like a paper mache burrow or something. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, still, yeah. you know. Yeah. And um, one of the guys Not had. Full a, of candy. Yeah. One of the guys had a straw. He was sticking out of his mouth. And. Um, it was hee-haw. It was so hee-haw. <laughs> and, and the lead singer at one point goes, this steak song is called Two Turds and a Golf Ball. And so that's now the joke. Whenever we see a band that's like trying so hard, we'll look at each other and the old nine sevens look at each other and go, two turds and a golf ball. There you go. That was uh, episode number 50 of R.I.Y.L. You know, I thought pretty pretty good subject matter for the for the big 5-0. Uh, thanks so much to Rhett Miller for taking the time to do that. I had a really great conversation. I was backstage at City Winery. Um, that was actually how the uh, the Shlomo episode came about, which was uh, a couple of episodes now. I was, I was, I was saving the Rhett Miller one up for uh, the, actually the release of the band's new album and for a special occasion episode 50 of of the show but uh, Shlomo was the booker for that show at City Winery which is how I first met him um, while having a, a great conversation backstage with Brett we you know over uh, there, was, there was some beer involved there was some whiskey he's a, he's a big uh, big Jameson fan um, there was also we ordered some food and apparently at least that week uh, at the City Winery if you ordered uh, the I guess the vegetables of the day or the, the greens of the week or whatever it was you would have gotten literally gotten just a plate of peppers so uh, during that entire conversation I was uh, I was I was drinking alcohol and was trying to eat an entire plate full of peppers I uh, thought it went pretty well um, in spite or I guess perhaps because of that uh, and you know usually I'm one to kind of uh, you know back away from conversations about um about September 11th when it seems like they're unrelated, but uh, I thought that went in a pretty, pretty, pretty interesting direction. Kind of a, a story about um, the compulsion one has towards towards making art. Um, going so far as actually stealing a a, a tiny toy musical instrument off of a, a marionette in order to write a, a song. Uh, as I uh, as I mentioned before, the band's got a new album coming out uh, next week. It's called uh, Most Messed Up. I've been listening to it for a while now. It's really fantastic. Lots of uh, Lots of, lots of good stories about, you know, what it means to, to be in a band 25 years on. So thanks so much to Red for taking the time to do that. Thanks to uh, to Hector and everybody at Shorefire for setting that up. Uh, thanks, uh, thanks as always, to, to Brian for, for editing the show together for many, many episodes. Uh, thanks to Geneva, who uh, edited the show before him. Uh, thanks to Box. Uh, recent uh, guest of the show, Box Brown, who drew the logo for the show. Uh, thanks to Mark and everybody else at Boing Boing for, for hosting up the show. We are very honored to be a part of the Boing Boing Podcast Network. Lots of good shows over there. You can find them at, uh, you can uh, discover them over at, uh, at uh, boingboing.net. You can find them over at uh, iTunes as well. And while you're at iTunes, why not take the time to rate this show? Um, we've got a Tumblr account. It's riylcast.tumblr.com. You can follow along there. The shows tend to go up um, hours, if not days, before they go up over on Boing Boing, so you can get get in early over there. Um, if you've got uh, any feedback, you can send us a note. It's riylcast at gmail.com. Uh, lots of good episodes coming up. We're not going to stop at 50. Um, 
why? Why? Why would we stop it? I don't know why even. That's not a thing that people do. I don't think. Uh, but uh, I, I spoke to, to to Chris Hayes recently from MSNBC. We're going to have him on the show coming up. Uh, we uh, got a conversation with the Black Lips. We've got several uh, uh, comic artists coming up. Um, James Kolchaka, Peter Cooper. I spoke to uh, Ultra Girl, who I used to uh, work with, Sarah Wooden, who I used to work with uh, over at uh, over at Spin Magazine. So that's uh, a fun one as well. Lots of good stuff coming up. Uh, we uh, will be back just about this time for uh, another episode of R.I.Y.L.